Thank you for listening to our Emmanuel Baptist Church podcast sermon series by Pastor Sean Cole. Emmanuel exists to display God's glory, declare God's gospel, and to disciple for God's great commission. If you have any questions about this message or would like more information about our church, you can visit our website at www.ebc-online.org. Now here's Pastor Sean. And the rest of you may want to take advantage, if you have really small children, of our nursery for our babies. And you can open your Bibles to Genesis chapter 39. Genesis chapter 39. This week I didn't have to send the kids out of the room because our subject matter is not as graphic as it was last week. Many of you have probably, at some point in time, maybe in college, have read Homer's The Odyssey. And maybe if you haven't read The Odyssey, you've seen the movie, Oh Brother, Where Art Thou?, which is a parody on The Odyssey. And there's this scene in particular in The Odyssey where Odysseus, if you know the story, he's a a brave voyager that goes across the seas of ancient Greece on all of these adventures, and, and he learns about this particular island where there are sirens on the island. Now, these sirens are these beautiful women that come out and sing these beautiful songs to try to lure and tempt and get the men that are on the boat off of the boat to come to shore on their island. And so they sing beautifully. But here's the problem with the sirens. When you come to shore and get on the island... They are no longer these beautiful women who sing. They are vicious monsters who attack you and eat you. That's why it's called the siren song. And so what Odysseus does, he says, we're not going to make it, fellas, if we have to go past this island. So let's put wax in our ears so we don't hear the siren song. And let's tie ourselves to the mast of the boat so that we are not tempted in any way to go listen to the siren song. Because it's, it's, it's a sham It's only going to lead to us being devoured. Now, this is a vivid description of the seductive allurement of a temptress. A seductive temptress. A powerful woman who will stop at nothing to get her way, and she uses her womanly charm to make men putty in her hands. Now, we can think of famous temptresses or famous seductresses throughout history. Lady Macbeth is an example. Cleopatra. We can think of famous temptresses that were even in the Bible. You've got Delilah, who was the one that tempted Samson to cut his hair. You've got Jezebel, who was trying to influence her King Ahab husband. We've had some famous movies that have had some um, seductive temptresses. We think back to the 80s with Glenn Close and Michael Douglas. Fatal Attraction, where a seductress tried to come and destroy his marriage. Now, what does a powerful seductress have to do with our journey through the book of Genesis? We now come to Genesis 39, where the seductress doesn't even have a name. She's called Potiphar's Wife. Doesn't even give a name. And what did we see last week in Genesis chapter 38? Judah and Tamar 
this graphic depiction of depravity at its peak, this downward descent into depravity, into immorality, into deception. And Judah is sinking into sexual immorality all through Genesis chapter 38. And here we come to Genesis chapter 39, and we see Joseph, his younger brother, being a man of integrity. He does not sink into moral depravity, but he resists temptation. And at face value, when we look at Genesis chapter 39, many have taught this as a blueprint, as a way for young men especially to flee sexual temptation. And yes, it's there. As we will see this morning, this passage teaches us how to flee sexual temptation. But it's a whole lot more than that. There's something grander to Genesis chapter 39 than just fleeing sexual temptation. What Genesis 39 shows us is that God is sovereign even in the midst of life's worst circumstances. And in some of life's most difficult circumstances, God's presence and power and protection are there. Now, one of the things that we've had to struggle with so far in this Joseph story is the issue of fairness. Was it fair that his brothers left him for dead in the cistern and sold him into slavery? Was that fair? No. Was it fair that they went back and they lied to their dad, Jacob, about the coat of many colors being dipped into blood and and trying to trick him into thinking that it was a wild animal that killed Joseph? Was it fair? Was it fair that Joseph is now, in all places, a slave in Egypt away from his family? Is it fair? Nothing in this story is fair. And we often look through the lens of fairness... And we want to be in control of our situations. And we don't ever want to have to deal with anything in our lives that would make us uncomfortable, be a trial, be a tribulation, be a struggle, be a frustration. We want things always to be fair. What does Jesus have to say about this? John sixteen thirty three. Listen to what Jesus says. I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Jesus doesn't say you might have tribulation. He says you will have tribulation. If there's one thing Jesus promises is that we will have trials, we will have tribulations, we will have struggles. As a matter of fact, if there's one verse of Scripture that really solidifies Genesis chapter 39, it is 2 Timothy 3.12. 2 Timothy 3.12 is in a nutshell what Genesis 39 is all about. And it simply states this. Paul writes in 2 Timothy 3.12, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Now here's a hard pill for us to swallow this morning. Sometimes when we do the right thing for God and when we act in integrity and when we do things for His glory, we may suffer the consequences and it may not end up the way that we want it to end up. It may cost us. It may cost us friends. It may cost us our reputation. It may cost us our job. It may even cost us our life in doing the right thing. You see, oftentimes as Christians, we think more like Eastern religion. We think more like New Age or Buddhism. This yin-yang type of situation where if I do a lot of good things, then God is bound to make good things happen to me. And if I do a lot of bad things, then God's going to make bad things happen to me. And yes, there is a principle of reaping and sowing that we see in the Bible. You do reap the consequences. But let me remind you, in Christianity, you may do all the right things, and bad things may happen to you. 
It's just the way it works sometimes. You may act in integrity. You may act in righteousness. You may act in purity. You may do exactly what God wants you to do, and it may not work out the way you want it to work out. And what's even more amazing is that God may be behind the scenes orchestrating events in your life to get you to where he wants you to be. And it may be for you to suffer for doing the right thing. And see, every fiber in our being wants to scream out to God, that's not fair. It's not fair, God. Why do I have to go through these things? Why do I have to suffer? Why do I have to endure? But there's one thing that God promises he promises his presence in the midst of any struggle that we have to go through. And that's what we clearly see here in Genesis chapter 39. This chapter is divided easily into three sections. <clears throat> this story in Genesis 39. The first section is in verses 1 through 6. And what we see in verses 1 through 6 is the Lord's gracious presence as Joseph prospers in Potiphar's house so let's read this together and let's see how it unfolds genesis chapter 39 verse 1 now joseph had been brought down to egypt and potiphar an officer of pharaoh the captain of the guard an egyptian had bought him from the ishmaelites who had brought him down there the lord was with joseph and he became a successful man And he was in the house of his Egyptian master. His master saw that the Lord was with him and that the Lord caused all that he did to succeed in his hands. So Joseph found favor in his sight and attended him and he made him overseer of his house and put him in charge of all that he had. From the time that he made him overseer in his house and over all that he had, the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house for Joseph's sake. The blessing of the Lord was on all that he had in house and field. So he left all that he had in Joseph's charge, and because of him he had no concern about anything but the food he ate. <clears throat> now Joseph has been sold into Potiphar's house. And who's Potiphar? It says here in verse 1, he is the captain of the guard. In other words, he is ahead of Pharaoh's secret service. He's the head of the elite security detail. He's an assassin. He's a spy. He's a man that knows how to interrogate people. He's a man that understands people's character. He is a top guy in the government. He's really the head of the secret service of Pharaoh, Pharaoh's bodyguard. And so Joseph somehow finds himself in this man's house of all people. And we have to ask the question, is this just blind luck? Is this coincidence? Is this just haphazardly Joseph just happens to be there? No, we've seen all along that God is orchestrating these events to get Joseph exactly into that house. And notice how many times it says here, the Lord was with Joseph. Four times it says that in this passage of Scripture as we go through there. The Lord was was with Joseph. Now, obviously the Lord is everywhere, present at all times. 
But what this is really saying is that the Lord is the one who's giving Joseph success. The Lord is the one that's causing the house to be blessed. The Lord is setting up Joseph to to, to, um, advance through the ranks. The Lord's fingerprints are all over this. It's not because Joseph is such an intelligent guy. Now, God may use his intelligence, and it's not because Joseph is so articulate. God may use his articulation, but it's really uh, the, the whole point of this is that God is orchestrating things to give favor to Joseph in the eyes of Potiphar. And so he's ahead of everything. He's in charge of everything, the entire household. He's the top staff of the entire household. He's not just a field slave. He is the head of the household. And there's an interesting statement there at the end of verse 6. So he left all that he had in Joseph's charge. Because of him, he had no concern of anything but the food he ate. That's an interesting statement, the food he ate. Kind of out of the blue, like, what's, what's, the, what's the issue with food here? Hold that thought. Food does not mean food, okay? Just hold that thought. It'll make sense later on. And by the way, this is the only time really in the Joseph story that the word the Lord shows up. Oftentimes, God is behind the scenes orchestrating events, but this is clearly explicitly stated, the Lord. Yahweh, Lord in all caps, is mentioned here. The Lord is the one that is doing this. And so, so Joseph is a blessed man because the Lord is doing this in his life. The Lord was with Joseph. But as one commentator has aptly said, amid Joseph's many blessings, he suffers from one blessing too many. Stunning good looks. So let's keep moving in the second section of this narrative. The Lord's gracious presence as Joseph flees the seduction of Potiphar's wife. So this is kind of in 6b, I guess. Chapter, verse 6 is divided into, into two there in the ESV. So let's pick up in the second half of verse 6. Now Joseph was handsome in form and appearance. And after a time, his master's wife cast her eyes on Joseph and said, Lie with me. But he refused and said to his master's wife, Behold, Because of me, my master has no concern about anything in the house, and he has put everything that he has in my charge. He's not greater in this house than I am, nor has he kept back anything from me except you, because you are his wife. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? And as she spoke to Joseph day after day, he would not listen to her, to lie beside her, or even to be with her. But one day, when he went into the house to do his work, and none of the men of the house was there in the house, she caught him by his garment, saying, Lie with me. But he left his garment in her hand and fled and got out of the house. And as soon as she saw that he had left his garment in her hand and had fled out of the house, she called to the men of her household and said to them, See? He has brought among us a Hebrew to laugh at us. He came in to me to lie with me, and I cried out with a loud voice. And as soon as he heard that I lifted up my voice and cried out, he left his garment beside me and fled and got out of the house. Then she laid up his garment by her until his master came home. And she told him the same story, saying, The Hebrew servant whom you've brought among us came in to laugh at me. But as soon as I lifted up my voice and cried, He left his garment beside me and fled out of the house. As soon as his master heard the words that his wife spoke to him, this is the way your servant treated me, his anger was kindled. Now, as you read the Bible, rarely does it give details about a person's looks. 
especially a man. We don't really have a lot of details about the looks of people in the Bible. But what do we find here about Joseph? Look at verse 6. Let me give you the literal translation. He was a stud. Something like that. He was handsome in form and appearance. Not only did he have good looks, but he was also built. Now you may ask, where did he get this? It runs in his genes. Who's his mom? Rachel. You have to remember a while back when we talked about Rachel, she was a drop-dead gorgeous babe. You remember? And the exact same wording back in Genesis 29 is used of her that speaks of Joseph here. So Genesis says the same thing about his mom. They are both very good-looking people. Now, there's nothing wrong with being good-looking. Some of us aren't blessed with that, and those of you that are, it's a curse at times, is it not, to be good-looking? It comes with its own issues. But it's not wrong to be good-looking. It's just how God made Joseph. But here's the issue. Potiphar's wife, this unnamed wife, wanted one thing. She wants Joseph. And look at verse 7. After a time, his master's wife cast her eye on Joseph and said, Lie with me. Now, you don't get this in your English text, but lie with me is two brief Hebrew words, short, crude Hebrew words that are meant to convey an animalistic lust. She's coming on to him very brash, very forward, very aggressive, very crude. And guess what? Potiphar's wife always gets what she wants. No one ever says no to Potiphar's wife. This is sexual harassment, but it's also an abuse of power. She's in a position of authority over Joseph. He's a slave. And I can't believe Joseph is the first man she's ever seduced. Joseph's not her first, I don't think. She's become crafty. She's become an expert in manipulating men to get what she wants, especially in a position of power. In in essence, Potiphar's wife's a tragedy. Let me ask you a question. Who's the slave in this story? And you ask the question, okay, Sean, that's easy. Joseph, he's the slave. He's the slave in the story. And technically, you are right. Joseph is the slave, but who's the real slave in this story? Potiphar's wife is the slave. She's enslaved to her lust. She's enslaved to her manipulation. She's spiritually enslaved, so much so that she can't say no to temptation. And it's ironic because Joseph, who's the slave in the story, can say no to temptation as a slave, and she who's free cannot say no to temptation because she's spiritually the one who's enslaved in this story. Artaxerdia has said this, true freedom is not saying now I can do whatever I want, but instead now I'm empowered to do what God wants. So how can Joseph say no to this temptation? Twice, we've seen it. The Lord was with him. The Lord was with him. Now, Joseph gives three reasons why he can't be with Potiphar's wife. Three very important reasons. Let's look at the first reason. We see this in verse 8. The first issue relates to his position of trust. Notice what he says in verse 8. He refused and said to her, Behold, because of my master, he has no concern about anything in the house, and he's put me in charge of everything that's in, that's in the house. And so 
basically the first line of reasoning that Joseph says is, this is a breach of trust. He's given me a position of responsibility. He's given me stewardship over the house. If I do this, I would be abusing my position as his, as his servant, and this is just not a good thing to do. I would be abusing his trust in my position. Secondly, he refuses based upon his relationship with Potiphar. Notice what he says in verse 9. He's not greater in the house than I am, nor has he kept back anything from me except you, and you are his wife. Basically, he says, listen, not only would I be abusing my position, but I'd be offending you and your husband. Because, listen, he's, he's given me in charge of everything except you. He, he said, don't touch you. Don't, don't give in to you. And I know that adultery is wrong. And if I, if I give in to this, I'm going to be sinning against you and against your husband. Now, let's think back to this whole issue of food. Potiphar said, you're in charge of everything, but don't touch the food. The word food there is a euphemism for his wife. So basically, Potiphar, in a kind of tongue-in-cheek way, says, Joseph, I know my wife. I've lived with her for a long time. You're in charge of everything, but don't go near her. Don't touch the food, quote-unquote, don't touch my wife. And Joseph knows that and says, okay, I can't do this. But most importantly, and this is the most important reason, the third reason, because of his relationship with God. Look at what he says. And this is the most important statement in this passage of Scripture. Verse 9. He is not greater in this house than I am, nor has he kept me anything back from me except you, because you are his wife. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? That's the real reason. This is wicked and it is a sin against my God. How can I do this? Take away my position of trust. Take away how it affects you and Potiphar. At the core of the issue, this offends my God. How can I do such a wickedness? And she's shocked because she's never been rejected before. This is kind of cute. A man with integrity. A man with morals. This is kind of a game. I've never had anybody say no to me. So what does she do? She hounds him day after day. Look at what it says in verse 10. And as she spoke to Joseph day after day, kept hounding him, kept going after him, he put up boundaries. Notice the boundaries. He would not listen to her. He would not lie beside her. He would not be with her. Now think about Joseph's position for a moment. He's the head of the servants. He could have written the schedule, if you will. And I'm sure he wrote the schedule so that he would never have to be alone with Miss Potiphar. He probably put buffers around him to where he was never scheduled at the same time. He was never in a compromising situation. He put boundaries around himself. By the way, young people, when it comes to relationships, it's very important to put boundaries around those relationships so that you don't get into the temptation in the first place. He does that. He puts boundaries. He doesn't even go near her. But that doesn't stop her. She's a powerful woman. And somehow she gets the entire staff to leave one day. Don't know how she does it, but she's a powerful woman. Verse 11, one day he went into the house to do his work, and none of the men of the house was there in the house. She caught him by the garment saying, lie with me. Okay, the first time she said lie with me, it was a verbal assault. This time she grabs him by the garment. And that word grabs him or caught him by the garment in the original Hebrew language really is a word that invokes violence. In other words, she tried to attack him. 
It wasn't just verbally this time. She grabs him, pins him to the wall, and, and crudely says, will you have relations with me? And that's the moment of truth for Joseph, right? He's pinned to the wall with this powerful woman breathing in his face, lie with me. Now, what kind of, what kind of excuses could Joseph have made to rationalize his, his behavior? Think about Joseph for a moment. Well, I'm lonely. You don't know what it's like to be lonely. I'm a lonely young teenager. I'm away from my family, and, and it's not going to hurt just this one time to give in because, after all, God knows that I'm lonely, and I need to have this need met in my life. Or what else could he have said? You know what? I'm from a really dysfunctional family. My dad's a sexual pervert. My brother's a sexual pervert. It just runs in our family. I can't help it. It's eventually going to happen to me. Now is my turn. That's just the way I am and my family is. Or he could have thought to himself, you know what? This is my ticket out of here. If I give in to her advances, she may promote me. She may get me out of slavery. This may advance my opportunity to get out of slavery. Or he could have done the super spiritual thing that a lot of Christians do. Lord, if it's not your will for me to have sex, please take the desire away. Lord, give me a Bible verse to quote. Let me see a sign that I shouldn't sleep with her. And if I don't see a sign, then it must be okay with you, God. What does he do? He does the one thing the Bible actually teaches us to do. Look at what it says there. Verse 12, she caught him by his garment saying, lie with me, but he left his garment in her hand and did what? Fled and got out of the house. He didn't flirt with sin. He didn't see how close to the edge he could get to sin without going over the the borderline. He, He runs as far away from it as he can. And that's what the Bible says we're to deal with, sexual temptation. Listen to what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6, 18 through 20. He says, flee, run from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You're not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. How do you glorify God in your body? You flee sexual temptation. You run from it. 2 Timothy 2.22. So flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace, along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. Now he runs out of there. He doesn't, before he gave excuses, right? He gave excuses why he couldn't do this. He doesn't stop to give her any excuses. He doesn't stop to flirt. He doesn't stop to give her rational nationality. He leaves. Now he could have done a couple of things, right? She's trying to attack him. He could have attacked her back. That would have been a problem though. You don't attack a woman. That, That could have put his reputation on the line. He could have been physically abusive and pushed her off. Or he could have just sat there and, and like tried to quote Bible verses as fast as he could and just kind of stood there and withheld it. No, he doesn't. He leaves. He flees. Let me ask you a question. What is more powerful, the devil or sexual temptation? Before you answer that, think. The Bible tells us to flee sexual temptation. And the Bible says, resist the devil and he will flee from you. I'll let you take your pick there, but I think one's more. One's used by the other, but it's amazing how the Bible never tells us to resist sexual temptation. It doesn't say that. It says flee, run, get out of there as fast as you can. And the reason, here's the reason why Joseph is empowered to flee. 
Here's the bottom line. He has a proper view of sin. He called it sin. Look back at verse 9. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? He calls it for what it is. He doesn't say, I'm going to have an affair. He doesn't call it a moment of weakness. He says, this is sin, and it's sin against God, and it's offensive to God. This is sin. That's the first key to resisting temptation, is calling it for what it is, calling it sin. You have to call sin, sin. It's amazing how many times we downplay sin, we justify sin, or we actually rename sin. You know we have a habit of renaming sins? We don't call it lying anymore. We call it exaggerating the truth. We don't call it stealing anymore. We call it, I'm going to borrow it with the intention of paying it back someday. We don't call it adultery or sexual immorality or sex before marriage. We basically say, I have needs that aren't being met and my spouse is no fun anymore. We become very skilled at dodging the hideous nature of sin. And one of the most important things we can do to say no to sin is to call it sin. It's just, just to flat out call it for what it is. It's an offense to God. Joseph says, how can I do such a wicked thing and sin against my God? Now, there's one damaging piece of evidence, right? What have I been saying every week about the Joseph story? How do you track the story? What's the, what's the most important thing in these stories? The clothes. In the first story, it was the coat of many colors. The clothes. He was betrayed by clothes. Last week, Tamar dresses up in prostitutes' clothes. This time, his clothes are left there. So a second time, he's betrayed by clothes. She's holding his clothes as a way to manipulate him. And so she's got to make up a story. Quick. Because I think that the servants, the rest of the servants know Joseph's character and know this would never happen. So she's got to make up a story. She's got the evidence. I've got, the, I've got his clothes. Let's make up a story. And I want you to notice how masterfully manipulative she is when she makes up the story. She's a master manipulator. She's skillful at this. This, this again, tells me this is not the first time Joseph, or this is not the first time that she's tried to, to seduce somebody. Look at what she does. Look at verse 14. She called to the men of her household and said, See, he has brought among us a Hebrew. That stinking Jew. She's anti-Semitic. She's playing upon their anti-Semitism to get them all riled against Joseph's character. He's that Hebrew. He's that Jew. He's that outsider. Look what he's done. And notice, secondly, look what he's done to us. To us? It's never been us with Potiphar's wife, especially with the slaves. It's always been me and you, the help. You, the chattel. You, the servants. You, the property. It's never been us. And notice how conveniently she says, he's come to make sport against us. So she's rallying them at their cause. She's, she's trying to put seeds of doubt in their head. She's playing on their anti-Semitism And she's angry, she's rejected, she's jealous, she's humiliated, and all she can do is wait till her husband comes home and she just grabs onto that garment. She's obsessed with the garment. Look at what it says. Verse 16, Then she laid up his garment by her until her master came home. I can't leave this garment. This is my piece of evidence. I'm going to obsess over this garment, and I'm going to tell my husband the same story when he comes home, but I'm going to add a twist. Notice what she does to her husband when he comes home. Now let me ask you something about 
Potiphar? Do you think he's a powerful man? Do you think he can understand people's character? Do you think he can read people? He's probably a master at interrogation. He's probably a master at being an assassin. He's a master spy. He knows how to read people. Do you think he made a mistake when he brought Joseph into the family and promoted him? What does Potiphar's wife do? She belittles her husband's character and basically says, you made a huge mistake by bringing this Hebrew into our house. Do something about it. Notice what she says. Verse 17. She told him the same story, saying, the Hebrew servant whom you have brought among us, it's your fault, Potiphar. You didn't have enough sense. You didn't have enough enough street smarts to see that this Hebrew, this guy's bad news. It's your fault. He came in to laugh at me. But as soon as I lifted up my voice and cried, he left his garment beside me and fled outside the house. As soon as the master heard the words that his wife spoke to him, this is the way your servant treated me, his anger was kindled. The question you've got to ask at the end of verse 19 is at whom? Who's he mad at? doesn't say. Is he mad at Joseph or is he mad at his wife? He's just mad. And that word mad there means he's ready to explode. And technically, legally, he had every right to execute Joseph right there on the spot. But let's see what happens. Does he choose the death penalty for Joseph? Who deserved it? According to her word. Let's explore the third section here. The Lord's gracious presence as Joseph prospers in Pharaoh's prison. Let's look at verses 20 through 23. And Joseph's master took him and put him into the prison, the place where the king's prisoners were confined. And he was there in prison. But the Lord was with Joseph and showed him steadfast love and gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. And the keeper of the prison put Joseph in charge of all the prisoners who were in the prison. Whatever was done there, he was the one who did it. The keeper of the prison paid no attention to anything that was in Joseph's charge because the Lord was with him, and whatever he did, the Lord made it succeed. He's accused of rape. And so Potiphar says, instead of putting him to death, I'm going to put Joseph in prison. But not just any prison, Pharaoh's prison. Now, is that just luck again? No, God is orchestrating events to get Joseph in the right place. Now, it may be prison, but it's Pharaoh's prison. And at this point, what do we want to scream? That's not fair. A second time, Joseph has been betrayed. He's been deceived. This time, he's not left for dead in a cistern, but he's left for dead in a prison, and he's betrayed a second time. The first time by his brothers, the second time by this manipulative woman, and he's not done really anything wrong. He actually did the noble thing. He resisted temptation. He said no. He walked away. He did not give in. He was holy. He was pure. He was a man of integrity. And what would you expect to find out? If this was an American story, it would be that he was vindicated. She got off or she got put in prison and and he rode off in the sunset and he lived happily ever after because everything goes right when you do God's will, right? Nothing ever goes bad when you do the right thing. Not if your name is Joseph. I said earlier, sometimes doing the right things, acting in integrity for the glory of God may end up being painful or causing you to suffer or bringing about 
consequences that you don't want to have to deal with for doing the right thing. And we oftentimes think, God is obligated to bless me if I do the right things for him. What's the problem with that? God is obligated. Anytime you say God is obligated, dot, 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 you've put yourself in the place of God. God is not obligated to do anything. But I want you to notice something in the second, in this last section. It's almost a mirror image. Do you see the mirror image of the first section? The first section, Joseph was in Potiphar's house. The last section, it's kind of like bookends of the story. He's in prison, and we see almost the same exact wording. The Lord was with Joseph. The Lord gave Joseph success. The Lord had love for Joseph. Joseph advanced. Joseph was in charge of everything. Joseph didn't have, or the, the leader didn't have to worry about anything because Joseph was in charge. It's almost a mere image of what happened. And think about Joseph for, for a minute. He's 17. He's betrayed by his brothers. He's left for dead. He's sold into slavery. And just when things get to their worst point, he gets into Potiphar's house. And then things start going really good. Hey, this is not bad. I'm not left for dead in a cistern. Hey, I'm still a slave, but I'm in charge of his whole household. I'm a leader among leaders. I've got influence. I've got some authority. I'm a man of integrity. And then just no sooner than that happens, then boom, one instant, Potiphar's wife makes him come all crashing down. And, and, and just in an instant, he's betrayed. And now he's in prison. A second time, betrayed. And we want to know, where's God in this story? God, I thought you always let your people succeed. I thought that it was all about having your best life now. I always thought it was about having success and being blessed and having every little dream come true. God, where are you in the middle of the story? Why would you allow Joseph to go through it a second time? This is just not fair. Whether Joseph is in a pit or whether he's in prison, one thing we're sure of, what does the text tell us? God is there. The Lord was with Joseph. The Lord was with Joseph. The Lord was with Joseph. Whether he's rotting in a prison, or he's rotting at the bottom of a cistern, or whether he's flourishing in Potiphar's house, or whether he's being faced with temptation, the one thing this story tells us is that God's there. The Lord was with Joseph. Listen to Isaiah 43. But now thus says the Lord, he who created you. O Jacob, he who formed you, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through fire, you shall not be burned, and the flame shall not consume you. Notice that the text there does not say if. It says when. When you go through the fire, when you go through the flood, when you go through the waters, not if, but when, what does God say? I will be with you. As a matter of fact, not only am I going to be with you, but I've called you by name. I've redeemed you. You're mine. God promises his presence. And we often wonder, how come I always get the wrong end of the stick? How come, I, oh, how come it's always me that ends up having to suffer? How come it's always me that has the problems? And even when I try to do the right thing, it just seems like nothing ever happens to benefit me. How come, God, I'm always in this situation where I am struggling, I'm suffering, I'm frustrated, and I'm trying to do everything right for you? Why? We don't know why. 
I can't even begin to tell you why. I don't know what God's doing. That's one of the hardest questions to answer, why? Because guess what? Sometimes God does not answer why. Deuteronomy 29, 29, I plead this all the time. And it's okay, Christian, to plead this. The secret things belong to the Lord our God. But the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that we may do all the words of this law. Newsflash. There are just some things that God has chosen not to reveal to us. And he has every right to leave those out. The secret things belong to God. We may never know why we experience heartache, suffering, and tribulation. We may never know why. Those are the secret things of God. But here's two things that we need to remember. When you suffer, when you suffer, there's two things that you need to remember. Here's the first thing you need to remember. We are sinful people who deserve nothing but hell and wrath and condemnation. And for us to be breathing at this moment is an act of grace. God owes us nothing. So when we have a pity party and we begin to whine and we begin to complain, we need to remember that God is not obligated to give us anything. And in his grace, he's given us a lot. He's given us life. He's given us breath. He's given us salvation. He's called us by name. But number two, I want you to think of something else. Whatever you're suffering, Christ suffered far worse than what you ever suffered. On that cross, he suffered far worse than you and I would ever suffer. So nothing that we go through compares to what Jesus went through. Do you want to know what it's like to be tortured? Jesus knows far worse. You want to know what it's like to be in prison? Jesus knows far worse. You want to know what it feels like to be lonely, depressed, frustrated, abandoned, betrayed? No matter what list you can stack up and say, that's what I've experienced, Jesus knows worse. In those moments when he was hanging suspended on the cross, he experienced the full brunt of all of that in his body. He knows what it means to suffer. You see, other world religions that we have out there in our world today, they don't know how to deal with suffering. Most Eastern religions, Buddhism, Hinduism, New Age, suffering is an illusion. It's not real. Well, thanks a lot. It feels real to me. Or they think it's a yin-yang type thing where, you know what? Maybe it'll be better the next time around when you're reincarnated. Or, you know what they say? Just look inside for that inner spark of divinity to help you get through. Just pull yourself up by your bootstripes. Try harder. Do you know what Christianity says? God chose to enter into the suffering himself. God left the glories of heaven and went right into the middle of our suffering to experience the loneliness, to experience the pain, to experience the torture, to experience the abandonment, to experience the depression, to experience the frustration, to experience all the evil things that we could ever experience. The God of the universe who created all things entered into that when he did not have to in the personal work of Jesus Christ. And when he died on the cross, he experienced far worse than we'd ever experienced. So we have a God who understands suffering because he suffered himself. And guess what? He passed through the waters of the cross. He passed through the fires of the cross. He passed through the pit of the grave and God raised him on the third day victorious. Which gives us hope that no matter what we go through, there's humiliation, but then there's exaltation. But the path to exaltation has to come through humiliation. 
See, Jesus had to die before he could rise again. And sometimes we've got to go through suffering before God raises us and gives us hope. So the question for you this morning is the same question for Joseph. Four times. Is the Lord with you? Is he your shield? Is he your comfort? Is he your strong tower? Is he your source of strength? Is he your solid rock in the midst of trials? One of my favorite hymns of all time is the solid rock. Listen to these powerful words and let them minister to your heart this morning. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. On Christ, the solid rock, I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. All other ground is sinking sand. Listen to this verse. When darkness seems to hide his face, I rest on his unchanging grace. In every high and stormy gale, my anchor holds within the veil. His oath, His covenant, His blood, they support me in the whelming flood. When all around my soul gives way, He then is my hope and stay. When He shall come with trumpet sound, oh, may I then in Him be found, dressed in His righteousness alone, faultless to stand before the throne. On Christ, the solid rock, I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. All other ground is sinking sand. The question for me to you this morning is, are you standing on this solid rock? Are you trusting wholly in Jesus' name? Because all other ground is sinking sand. All other ground is sinking sand. Let me ask you to bow your heads this morning. And I don't know what you're going through this morning. Some of you may be going through a tempest, a storm, a pit, a prison, a frustration, a tribulation, whatever it is. And if you are in Christ this morning, if you're a Christian, know beyond a, beyond a shadow of a doubt that Jesus is with you in the midst of it all. He's not left you. He's not abandoned you. He is with you. He may not get you out of it right away, but he will be with you every moment through it. So would you spend some time this morning just going to Jesus who is our solid rock and confessing your need for him and placing your faith in him and just asking him to come and minister to you in a very powerful way no matter what you're going through this morning. Would you spend some time in silent prayer this morning? Lord, I want to pray specifically for those in this room that are struggling with sexual temptation. That they would do the biblical command to flee. As hard as that may be at times. That they would run as far away from that temptation. And they would say in their hearts, how can I do such a wicked thing against my God? Lord, I want to pray for those in this room that may be suffering the consequences of doing the right thing. They haven't compromised. They, 
have acted in integrity. Maybe they're suffering persecution or hardship because of doing the right thing. Lord, would you give them strength? Would you keep, the, keep them strong and, and give them hope to know that they're doing the right thing? Lord, others in this room that are going through a trial, going through a struggle, going through a storm, maybe they're passing through the water, they're passing through the fire, would you just remind them deeply from your word this morning that you've called them by name, You've redeemed them. You are there with them right in the middle of it. And finally, Lord, I pray for those this morning who don't know you. Those in this room who do not have a relationship with you that that can't sing on Christ the solid rock I stand. They don't have the hope of salvation. They don't have the hope in their heart to know that you are there with them because they're separated from you by their sin. Would today be the day that they repent and believe in you, Jesus, as their only Savior? And would you save them out of their sin and give them the hope of eternal life? Thank you for always being with us. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.